So our text uh, for the day, for this afternoon, is uh, continuing in Revelation chapter 19. Just as a reminder to perhaps refresh your memory that when we spoke last uh, of the first part of the chapter, there was a, um, we were looking at the, um, the hallelujahs, the praise the Lords that were presented um, to John in the vision. And he saw, first of all, the, um, the praises going to God for the defeat of the harlot. And then also the invitation to come to the wedding feast. And um, I was so thankful for it. And I, I so appreciate those scriptures because it, it calls us to uh, wait patiently for uh, the Lord's glory to be seen in, in the world, um, to be uh, revealed. Um, and it, it gives us hope. I certainly hope it gives us hope. Uh, it gives me hope that um, we will have these, um, these times of rejoicing, even though at times things are very difficult. Um, so now we're going to continue on, um, and we're going to speak of the rider on a white horse. But before we begin this, uh, the next few verses, we're going to go to the end of the chapter from verse, um, from verse 11 right through to the end. I want you to just, in your mind, uh, picture, um, and perhaps you are familiar with this. I'm sure some of you would be much more familiar with it. But in, in a lesser extent, we would all, I'm sure, have seen or recognized this event. But you have two um, uh, opponents who are uh, destined to face each other. Um, oftentimes we see this uh, in uh, sporting events, pugilism oftentimes, um, where the opponents uh, are, are set the match is set in a sense, and the day is drawing closer, and the opponents then come together. And part of what they do is they um, they want to intimidate their part, their their opponent, and uh, we would call that trash talking. Um, you know, in, in a, a younger generation, would call that trash talking. So you, you talk to your opponent, and you try and um, you know say things to them that uh, are going to frighten them, or, or you bring with you a an over overabundance of confidence that you are going to win, and uh, and oftentimes it, it can be very nasty, but it's all part of a strategy, a strategy of, of fear to put fear into the hearts of your opponent. Um, and so we, we oftentimes see this. And the book of Revelation uh, is oftentimes about contrasts. We see in different uh, contrasts the city, uh, the city of God versus the city of, uh, of um, uh, the harlot. Um, we see, uh, last time we talked about a, a great feast, the marriage supper. Today we're going to talk about uh, another feast that happens, but not a good feast. And so there's these contrasts uh, of uh, that are presented, and this is one of those contrasts uh, of definitely a, a two different sides that are, uh, in a sense, coming to a showdown. I remember the book Showdown of the Gods. I don't know what I can't remember. I don't remember what that's about. I didn't read it, but I often thought about that phrase in my mind: a showdown of the gods. Um, as I was considering this, because what we're what we're seeing here. All through Revelation, uh, especially uh, uh, as we were introduced to the beast in chapter um, uh, 13, 
we see this um, identifying who the opponents are, a clear identific- identification, and um, the, uh, the trash talk that happens. Revelation 13, chapter 4, or verse 4 says, And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So the followers of, of Satan, the followers of the beast are saying, look at our guy. Who is able to make war against him? Uh, if you look uh, in, in another spot in chapter in chapter 13, it says here, uh, of the beast, and he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. A blasphemy is like to offer an indignity towards God, um, is an injury offered to God, denying that which is due. So instead of giving God honor and glory and worship, uh, they, they instead heap reproach on him. And so here we have a beast who is putting himself up, who is energized by Satan himself, and the nations are looking to this beast and they're saying, who, look at him, who is able to make war against the beast? And he himself, along with the false prophet, are, are speaking blasphemy against God. And, and they're trash-talking God and, and the children of God. And, and they're, they're basically uh, trying to strike fear into their hearts and to deceive them to think that there is no hope. In Revelation 16, uh, it says, starting at verse 14, and they, for they are the spirits of devils. Now these were the, uh, the frogs that came out of the mouth of the beast and Satan and the, the, uh, false prophet. So for they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth of the whole world to gather them to battle of that great day of Almighty God. So we see that these spirits are going forth into the world and they're amassing the army. They're gathering them together for this great day. And it says in verse 15, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. So we see this this amassing of the armies, this amassing of forces, and a gathering of the troops. And the sides are set, they're defined. And the battle is already predicted. Revelation 17, verse 14 says, These shall make war with the Lamb. Speaking of the, the beast and his followers, and those that took the mark of the beast and um, pledge allegiance to him. And the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So we see already all through Revelation, especially you know, from 13 on, that the sides are being defined and they're starting to shape what's going to happen in the future. And there's this great battle coming. And we see then also the, the antics of the opponent who's trying to strike fear into the hearts of the, uh, the children of God. Uh, if he were, if it were possible to even uh, overcome them or to take them, uh, to uh, dissuade them from choosing the lamb and, and identifying with Christ instead to come and take the mark of the beast. 
So then we come to Revelation uh, chapter 19, verse 11. Because all of this talk now is going to, uh, it's the time, it's the day of the, of the battle, if we can call it that. The time of the fight. All the talk has been done. The sides have been marked. And now it's time for the action. And so this is where we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in, right, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, of, of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and flesh of horses and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which he deceived them, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all of the fowls were filled with their flesh. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So we see here in verse 11, uh, it says and it begins, And I saw heaven open. This is the second time now in Revelation where we see that John is, is given a, a vision into heaven. And it says uh, the other time would when he saw into the throne room in verse or chapter 4. And he sees, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. So the white horse is a sign of victory. Uh, Caesar uh, rode into Rome, uh, I believe it was Caesar, on white horses after his uh, battle in, in Africa. The sign of victory. And uh, he that sat upon him was faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. So we are seeing here, uh, John is seeing here, the, uh, the Lord Jesus, the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world on the white horse. And he that sat upon him was faithful and true. And we'll see as we go through the, the verses that it is the Lord Jesus. Isaiah chapter 11, um, verses 3 says, And he shall make of him quick. And he shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his words. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor. This is what we're seeing here. This scripture is from Isaiah speaking of the Messiah, that it's with righteousness that he will judge. Not with what he sees or with what he hears, but with righteousness according to the the law of God. 
and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he will smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. So here already in Isaiah, they were looking forward to the Messiah, the righteous judge. And here this is the righteous judge who doth, uh, who doth judge and make war. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. So the flaming eyes, is this the, the image of him being able to see? The, have we often heard of that phrase? And I'm not sure, I'm, I'm conjecturing here, but that his vision was uh, perfect and that he could see within. You know, have you ever heard of that, that their eyes burned into me? I don't know, maybe I'm taking a common day phrase and putting it to this. I haven't looked into this particular description. But the vision of Christ was not just a surface vision that he saw on the outside. We know that he saw within the heart. So this, going along with him as a righteous judge, his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Jesus, in verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 15, says that now the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Christ. Jesus wore the kingdoms, the crowns of the kingdoms on his head. Of all of, of, of creation, of all of, of, of heaven and earth, Jesus was sovereign over all things. And he wore the many crowns on his head. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. The secret name. It reminds me of, of in Pergama, or Pergamum, the, the believers there would receive the stone, and that stone had a secret name on, on it, and it was their name. And only they knew that stone. Jesus here himself has a name. Will we ever know the name? I don't know. I don't know if we, if we're ever given that privilege of knowing what that secret name of the Messiah is. We know what some of his names are and we're going to read about them, but that secret name, will we ever know? I don't know. I'm intrigued by that. I'm intrigued by the believers receiving that white stone that gave them entrance in a sense to the kingdom of heaven, that gave them that verdict of innocence. Verse 13, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. Now this idea that his vesture was dipped in blood, um, there's two, two thoughts that happen here. One is that, out, and we see in, in Isaiah... In Isaiah 63... There's a messianic prophecy here, and it says, Who is this that cometh from Edom, with dyed garments from Basra? This is this that is glorious in his, in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, that I speak in righteousness, mighty to save, speaking of Christ now. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the vine, in the wine fat? I have trodden the wine press alone. And of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will, and I will stain all my raiment, for the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Isaiah wrote about the fury, the righteous wrath of God, and the imagery of, and we've already seen this in Revelation, where the imagery of the, the, the grapes being uh, harvested and put into the wine vat, and, and then God in his wrath treading the grapes. And, and so some have thought that perhaps this reference here of the, the, the vesture dipped in blood is this. Others think to 
and, and I, as I was trying to, to look into this and, and research this a little bit, he is coming from heaven. Is this his own blood? The blood that signifies that he is the, the, the lamb that was slain. We saw in, in, in Revelation chapter 5, the image of the lamb that was slain. Not the mighty conquering king that uh, John would have been looking for, but instead he saw the lamb that was slain. We have redemption through his blood, it says. And is the vesture dipped in blood representative of, of the work of salvation that God has done through Jesus Christ? And his name is called the Word of God. John often writes, and, and when it comes to the, the authority or the authorship, we know that John wrote it. Was it John the Apostle? Or was it John, a different John? But this is one of those areas where we see a similarity to John the Apostle because here he, he says, and his name is called the Word of God. If we look in, in the Gospel of John, we see something very similar uh, where John begins the Gospel. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, it also says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John is referring to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as the Word. The Word was in the beginning, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Also, if you look in the uh, first uh, chapter of um, the letters of John, we see something very similar. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our, ha- and our hands have handled, of the word of life. Again, he's referring to Christ, whom we have seen, handled, and we've heard, and he is the word of life. So John uses this idea that the word of God is Jesus, is Christ. And we see that uh, uh, carried out through uh, John's writings. So what's the significance of his name is called the word of God? We read in, in the second verse of, of Revelation, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Um, we also know that the, the believers would have suffered for the word of God. They would have suffered for the testimony which they carried. So the word of God is, is the record or the revelation. The will of God is expressed in the word of God, in the testimony of Jesus. But we also see that those who are Christ's um, have also themselves died for the word of God. It says in Revelation 6, verse 9, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. So here we see that God, that Christ, as identified, is as the word of God. And that's significant um, in that this is also the tool or the weapon that he uses Verse 14 says, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now we can uh, recognize, if we go just back in, in chapter 
19, a little ways, we ended, or one of the last verses that we ended with was describing the uh, those who were in heaven called to the marriage feast. Verse 8 says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And so we see here, not only uh, do we see the, the Savior, the, the Lamb of God, on the white horse, riding out to meet, to face the army that are opposing him, we see with him, though, uh, those who are also riding white horses, who also have experienced victory, who also have their, their clothing is that fine linen, white and clean. And so we can only assume that these are the saints. Those that would have been uh, with him in heaven are now also coming to observe, because we never read of them actually fighting alongside him. But we see that the um, that they come out, whether it's to observe, whether it's to witness, to uh, be able to give glory to God. I'm not sure why they came out, but they come out with him. But they do not actually participate in the battle. And then in verse 15, we see further, as it goes on, describing the, the Savior, describing the, the warrior, it says, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So here we see out of his mouth, what, or the sword, we see a sword. Um, and, and this is not uh, new to battle imagery, but not a sword out of the mouth. This is a sword that comes, typically we would think of the sword in the hand, and, and the warrior would, would bear the sword and, and go out and fight and, and slay his enemies. But this is not what we see here. We see here instead that the sword go, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. Um, if you think back to Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is quick. And powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So here the word of God is quick. Is describing it as as better than or sharper than any two-edged sword. We already heard that Jesus is described as the word of God. Now we see that out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. And we remember that the sword, the word of God, is is sharper than a two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we're seeing this uh, Savior coming in righteousness, able to judge and make war, but his name is the Word of God. He's not coming, perhaps, as uh, his opponent would be coming to him, uh, with uh, this might of, of forces or, or of um, whatever he would be coming with, but instead he is establishing himself as the Word of God. Truth, true and faithful. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. It says again in, in Isaiah chapter 11, we, we talked about that with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And it says, with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. So here we see this duality of being the judge and the, the one who makes war. Uh, the one who judges righteously, but also with the rod of his mouth he slays the wicked. In Psalm, Psalm chapter, or Psalm 2, verse 9 says, Thou shalt break them with the rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
So from verse chapter 13, we've been seeing the beast defined. We've been seeing his role and his antics and his uh, um, posturing. But yet, we have to recognize that so long before Revelations chapter 13, even in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets and saints were already looking forward to this time. And they were already prophesying about the one who is to come. And they were telling us how he would come and how he would defeat his enemies and what it would look like. And here we can see that he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of God, the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Here we now see, as it, uh, the allusion to Isaiah 63, where God's uh, wrath would be poured out and the, it would come in the form of the treading of the grapes. So here we see now that the word of God coming forth from his mouth is the tool, the weapon that he's using. And then in verse 16 it says, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We read in verse 17 already, uh, or chapter 17, verse 14, And these shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. So we already saw this prophecy uh, in, in chapter 17, looking forward to knowing who is coming. And so here we see that he is labeled king of kings. This is where we get that uh, that great climactic uh, finish in the um, uh, Handel's Messiah, where, where the sopranos just keep going higher and higher and higher, and the rest of the choir has to drop down, because we're not going to go that high, but they just start belting it out. Oh, king of kings, lord of lords. And I'm always so struck by how high they go, and I feel sorry for you, but... I I can appreciate that it must be a joy to be able to sing like that. But this is where we come, this is where we get that King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Can you imagine though? Can you imagine? And maybe this will help us to sing these a little bit differently. That when, as we go through and we start to see that this is the one who is coming. This is the one who is fighting for us. This is the one who is going out to meet the beast and the false prophet and all the blasphemies and all the, the posturing that they do. And, and he's not coming with, with, uh, uh, all this posturing and so on. He's just coming as, with the testimony of the Lord. He is coming with truth. He's coming with righteousness. He's coming with faithfulness. And yet we have this confidence and we ought to have this confidence that with the truth of God's word that he will be victorious and that he will slay the enemy. And so as we sing that song, perhaps maybe let's put that in our minds that this is the one who we are singing about, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it says here in verse 17, now speaking of the wedding, the contrast between the wedding feast and this feast, and I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men both Free in bond, both small and great. This is almost a direct uh, or very close to um, scripture found in Ezekiel. Um, again, calling the fowls of the earth and the air and the beasts to come and to um, to devour the the fallen foe. Verse 19, And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. So now we have fully established the two sides. And in verse 19, it's almost like this reset. Now I saw it, and here it is. And the battle is about to commence. 
And here's the, this thing that I always find great humor in is that oftentimes those who speak the loudest and are the most boisterous and the most um, uh, bragging on themselves oftentimes face a very quick defeat. And this is no different here. And it says in verse 20, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Done. There's no battle. There's no great war. You know, how many times have we seen war pictured or battles, this, these great contests between two foes, and, and, and you know, it, it goes back and forth, and, and you know, Hollywood and, and storytelling would oftentimes take us to the brink where, uh, you know, oh my goodness, the, the good person, the good side is almost defeated, and, and you know, they're, they're just about down and out, and something happens, and they become victorious again, and finally evil is defeated. No, there's none of that here. That's fancy storytelling, but this is not fancy storytelling here. This is a very clear and decisive victory. The beast, the false prophet, they're in one verse dispatched, forever, done, gone. We hear nothing more of them after this. And there's no great battle. It is the will of God and the sovereignty of God and Jesus Christ as Lord of all that says, you two are done. And he takes them and he throws them into the to the pit, into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. It's To me, it's, you have one who is so uh, full of himself, so um, uh, bragging on himself. Look, look at the, think about the, the harlot riding on uh, with all of her gold and jewelry and her fine clothing. Think about the beast and the blasphemy and, and, and the false prophet and, and the miracles and everything they did trying to steal and to bamboozle and, and to take your love and your allegiance to God and to turn it and to twist it and to say, worship me instead. And all of this, this uh, pride and arrogance and deception and it's all in, in, in a moment, it's, it's taken care of. It's all defeated. In verse 20, And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Think about what was his weapon. His weapon was the word of God, faithful and true. Think about what was the, the tactic of our adversary. Deception, lies, trying to uh, hide the truth. He is a liar after all. He's the father of lies. And here we see, in accordance with scripture, how the battle is won by the truth of God's word, by the sword that proceeds out of the mouth of God, the word of God, the truth. We have to, this is significant, and I'll tell you why I believe this is very significant. Because every one of us needs to hold on to this victory that we have through Jesus Christ. Every one of us who are a child of God have this opportunity, will be one of those in the clean white robes riding on a white horse who have the victory. And the victory is the truth. The victory is the word of God. This is our victory. Our victory is not 
contingent on anything. Our victory is sure. Our victory is not uh, compromised by the forces of evil. No matter how dark and how deep it may seem that the evil is, it is not victorious over us. We have a commander, a conqueror, riding on a white horse, who has defeated already Satan, who has already, by the truth of the word of God, by the testimony of of Jesus Christ, he has defeated the one who is a liar and the one who blasphemes and the one who uh, continues to feed the world with alternatives and counterfeits. We have won already through Jesus Christ. Any sort of vision that we have of spiritual warfare, we have to remember, we have to have this vision of Jesus Christ as the conquering Savior in our minds. Or else we are are fighting uh, a losing battle. If our idea of spiritual warfare is anything less than Jesus Christ victorious, who dispatches the enemy completely without a battle by the word of his mouth, If we have any other vision in our minds in spiritual warfare, we are defeated. We will not have the victory. We need to hold on to this victory that we have through Jesus Christ. We need to take great confidence that when we engage in spiritual warfare, that we have a a Savior who is already proven that he is victorious. And so when Ephesians talks about, uh, you know, take on the armor of God, what is it, what is it really asking us to do? It's asking us to, in a sense, take the word of God as our victory. Where does your righteousness come from? Well, the word of God tells us that our righteousness comes from Christ. Where is salvation come from? How is your head protected with the helmet of salvation? Is I know that I am saved. I know that my Redeemer lives and that I am no longer a slave to sin. And when it says, put on the belt of truth... It's talking nothing less than the word of God itself. And this is the victory that Jesus has won. This is the victory that you and I have. The church, the churches that Paul or that John addressed at the beginning needed very much to hear this. Because they were very much living in that reality that it seemed like the beast was victorious. And even though, you know, they, they may be in their minds were, they may have been wrestling. They may have had doubts. They needed to hear that the beast and many of it, Rome would have been like that. Nero oftentimes is considered the beast because of the atrocities that he did and the blasphemes, blasphemy that he, uh, that he spouted out. They needed to hear this. They needed to know that the word of God was victorious. That truth would set them free. This morning, Brother Dan talked about hope in God. Oh, we need this hope in God. Because he spoke of desire. The four things there were desire. Um, the psalmist gave his desire or spoke of his desire. Even as the deer pants for the water, so my soul is longing after thee. And then, you know, they talked about the feelings, though. The feelings of uh, perhaps, uh, and I can't remember exactly the context in that, but how many times do our feelings betray us and, and maybe we become scared? Maybe we face the beast. 
Maybe we face the false prophet or the great harlot and we say to ourselves, oh, I have no hope anymore. I cannot uh, win against this evil or I cannot win against this, uh, this tide against the church of God. And then we need to, and the third point was, speak truth. We need to appeal to the truth. We need the truth of the word of God to speak into our hearts. To take away the fear that feelings may have been uh, subjecting us to. The hope that we have in God. And this is a great example of one of those, those truths that we need to know that God is victorious. Jesus Christ, through his word, is victorious over the beast. And there's no contest. It's not even close. It's a complete routing of the enemy. The fourth point, just to finish that up, was taunts. And here we see, uh, Ray spoken of how the devil, uh, how the beast, how the false prophet would have been blaspheming God. The taunting. Who can uh, make war against the beast? Let's take these truths, like we heard this morning. Let these truths settle in our hearts. Let this truth uh, so convict us and so become the basis of our faith. And then, let that truth be what informs our feelings. Let that truth be what gives us those feelings of joy and of security, and of love for our Father, for our Savior, for our Bridegroom. So that when we do come again to the time when we can sing the Hallelujah Chorus, that because this truth has so settled in our hearts, that we have a victorious Savior riding on the white horse, who is victorious and a conqueror, that we can then sing, even louder, even more pure, even more majestically, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.